0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Random Elcher, and I'm very pleased today to have with me the author of a fascinating and gorgeous new book titled The Globe Makers: The Curious Story of an Ancient Craft, just published in 2023 from Bloomsbury. I have with me Peter Bellerby, who is a globe maker um, of very, very cool globes. And this book is all about how he came to be a globe maker and a bit about how it's going. So, Peter, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
0: Thank you very much for having me. (laughs) I'm I'm thrilled to be here.
1: Well, we're thrilled to have you. Um, But before we dive into the book's contents itself, could you please introduce yourself a little bit and explain why you decided to write a book?
0: Yeah, so um, my name is Peter Bellaby, and I... Um, I set up this well, kind of going things in slightly the, the odd way around. But I set up a company um, in 2010, um, just after I um, had decided, rather stupidly, to try and make my father a globe for his 80th birthday. And it was such a wonderful process—the the two years of the trial and error and all the fantastic coincidences that happened, and the meetings with people that happened—that I always wanted to write some sort of a book, some sort of a pamphlet leaflet to go with all our, our globes. Just when we, we send our globes out, um, we ship all around the world. And so um, I'm, I'm always um, embarrassed by the fact that we send this little um, kind of booklet and, and it used to be just a postcard with a globe that might have cost thousands of pounds. And so I always wanted to write something that, that told the whole story of how this all happened. And rather wonderfully, an agent a couple of years ago got in touch with me and said, I'd love you to write a book. And I I just replied, I would love to write a book. And it's gone from there. And it's been an amazing collaboration between both both me writing the narrative and and my team helping to illustrate the book Uh as well as we have been photographed so many times over the years. We've got a very aesthetic studio. And so you have to, talk to us, come in and take photos. So we, we included a lot of those in the book as well. Was that short?
1: <laughs> no, that was brilliant. Um, thank you for the introduction. And I think it's very, um, I'm, I'm so glad you highlighted right at the beginning, just how aesthetic the book is, right? How photographs and the illustrations, um, it really is quite a gorgeous book
0: as well. Uh, be, that even... was really important for us that it has mm-hmm. to represent the company. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it does um, definitely have a cool story as well as visually being pretty spectacular. Um, So, on the story side, you just briefly mentioned kind of the initial impetus for this, but it is worth going into a bit more detail. Why did you decide to create your own
0: globe? So, like everyone around the world who buys their father a present for his birthday, I've struggled over the years. I bought the usual thing, um, alcohol, um, shirts, ties. One year I even bought cigars for him, the finest Cuban cigars. Um, he obviously um, has not smoked since his 20s, so he um, didn't take, take that very kindly. So I thought for his upcoming 80th birthday, I would make a globe for him. I thought it would be a, a really fun thing to make. Sorry, I'll take that all back. I thought I'd buy him a globe. Um, so I then I then went around um, Stanford's looking for a globe, um, which is a big store in central London and, and other places, Harrods, and I looked around auction houses and I realized there was nothing that I I was drawn to or that was the, the modern ones tend to be relatively um, relatively simple in, in their design and the antique ones every time you spend them, another piece falls. So therefore I came to the um, logical conclusion uh, or not that I should make my um, father um, a globe. And so I set about um, making a globe. It was 2008. I had just finished um, a, doing some, um, some houses up and I was about to buy another house. Um, I was doing a little bit of property developing and 2008 was possibly the worst time in the world to um, get involved in buying a new house. So I thought I, I would give it a go to try and make one for my dad and gave myself three months and a few thousand pounds and, and pay presto two years later and first the 200,000 pounds, I had a glow.
1: That sounds sort of nice and straightforward and easy, told like that, um, which of course you detail in the book wasn't quite so straightforward. So can you kind of start us off at the beginning? What was the initial list of tasks and priorities you had for, right, I'm going to build a globe. Here's what I think I need to do. And then how well did that match up to the actual process? What was missing from that initial list?
0: Well, so so obviously, I'm sorry, I was using um, slightly stupid English sarcasm there. The so i gave myself three months and a few thousand pounds and it literally took me two years and two hundred thousand pounds so it went way off the scale so i guess at the beginning i my list um was was just the main construction um things. so i needed to make a sphere. um didn't seem too difficult i needed to learn how to put the the what are called gauze onto onto a sphere and obviously that had been done amazingly well in the 17th and 18th centuries. So with modern materials, modern processes, there's no reason why I couldn't do that. I was pretty confident with my hands when I did property developing. I often did a lot of the tasks myself, so I wasn't faith like that, I, which was a bit silly. But and so uh, I had the other processes I had to find um, a meridian to, to circle around the globe and I had to find a woodworker who would help me make the wooden stands. What I was missing from all of that was um, the fact that when well, I suppose the reason it was, things were missing is I had no idea until three or four months in that I was going to turn this into a company. So I didn't even think that once I had turned it into a company, I had to have a PR and marketing strategy. I had to, um, to I had to realize that I, I might be doing interviews. I might be doing photo shoots. I had to be um, engaged in that and and learn how to smile. Um, I had to learn how to, if we were going to market into stores, I had to learn how to get into stores. It's impossible finding buyers in stores. So it was all the kind of commercial side of things because I didn't plan this as a business. I just planned it to begin with, to make um, a couple of globes. And so I I was missing a whole host of um, commercial things that that you would have in any normal sort of business plan.
1: Mm. No, that that makes sense, especially as you said, you weren't trying to make a business to begin with. Getting in then to the process of actually making the globe, and before we get to the map bit, there's, of course, the sphere it has to go on. How difficult is it actually to make a sphere that one can then do other things
0: with? It's... There are, there are many ways to skin a cat. I wanted to make sure that I did this in the kind of most handmade way. So you can um, get fiberglass. Uh, sorry, you can. I was using plaster paris at the beginning, but we now use fiberglass. But neither one of them you can get spun and cast into a sphere. But that, that just takes away any romanticism of the process. So my. Um, the way I did it at the beginning was was just to get two hemispheres and then try and, and join them together. And both the process of making hemispheres with glass of Paris and the process of extracting the hemisphere from the mold, the, the finding a mold that is half decent is nigh on impossible. And then trying to cut the edges that you've created. Um, at the top of each hemisphere and then join them together and then obviously balance the a globe um, after you've done all this process. Those are all wonderfully interesting things. Engineering challenges, which, to be honest, I, I loved every bit of it. That's, in a sense, that's why I, I did this. I thought there might be a few little engineering challenges. I didn't realize that when you are... Dealing with spheres and circles, um, you can you can almost multiply um, any error by a factor of pi. You know, it just it just seems that way. Um, you if every time something goes wrong, it's like three point one four one five nine six two whatever times wrong. It's just everything is is um, is exacerbated by the fact um, that you are dealing with a sphere. There, there really is a very good reason why. Up until very recently, the the vast majority of all buildings around the world have been built straight sides. It's just, um, it's so much simpler.
1: This is something that as I was reading the book, um, I kept sort of imagining like not quite spherical balls like rolling around the studio and just sort of escaping you at every turn. And so I wasn't particularly surprised having got to that point. To um, kind of read about the enormous number of tools and apparatuses needed to make this actually happen, I was surprised though that you've had to create a bunch of them um, from scratch. Why? And can you introduce us to some of them?
0: Yeah, it's it's things like compasses. We we have to make gigantic compasses, and the thing the thing there's always a challenge uh, with compass is the fact that normally when you're on a flat piece of paper they kind of work but as you put more pressure on them they they tend to unless they've got a they're very rigid they tend to slightly drift away from the center um, as you're spinning them around and certainly as the angle increases that that gets worse. Well obviously we're we're dealing with a sphere so you're dealing with very acute angles at, at some stage. So we've had to make gigantic um, gigantic compasses uh, which often are just arches of metal which have a point um, which yeah. um, neatly goes into uh, either pole and then um, we attach a pencil to the the um, point where we want to add the kind of um, the line that goes around um, the globe so well prior to putting on a gore, we are marking the globe up where the latitude lines are to give us a, a guide. So that's one thing, but but we we have so many jigs here. You you can imagine most canvases that you paint on are relatively simple. It's a flat canvas. It can either go on the floor or it can go on the wall. So if, for instance, you want to varnish a flat canvas, it's easy. You start at one end and you stop at the other end. If you want to varnish a globe, you have to... Um, have a jig that it goes in, so none of it touches um, where what it would normally be sitting. in. usually we have all these sort of round objects around the studio that the globes get put in. They have a um, tendency to roll away, so um, we um, we have jigs so that the, um, the globes can be supported with a rod through the axle, so that we can do these um, processes uh, whereby. Um, um, so that we can add a layer of varnish um, all in one without without having to stop and we have with the workshop we have i mean 50 jigs every every single table we make every single new design we have to make jigs to make it work because it's there just isn't something built even even the kind of um the basic circular surround that um goes around a um a globe in a traditional stand. Um, you be able to see those images of those either in the book or online. Um, that is something that no other manufacturer makes. It's just not who makes a, a piece of wood that has a huge hole in the center. So um, we, we've had to learn processes, but we've also had to build um, jigs and, and arrangements in order to to make those work.
1: Huge amount of work, um, and we're not even done with the globe creation bit. Uh, so moving on from the creation of the sphere to the actual putting the maps on it, where do you get your maps from, and why has this been unexpectedly complicated?
0: So I licensed our map from um, just a, a, a company that has a, a great, um, uh, I draw great online collection of maps in vector form. And what I didn't realize is that a lot of people have just not bothered to update maps because for whatever reason, I don't know, it's just, I think they had the same lethargy that globe making had for most of the last half of the 20th century, where people would be so bad at making globes, they would, they, you would lose continents or countries at times because the pieces of paper would just um, overlap far too far. And so when I got the map originally, I basically stripped it completely back and, and started, started from scratch. Um, that was the only way to do it. Um, and it's, um, it's kind of... Um, it's been complicated in this, in sense, and perhaps this is kind of slightly leading on to the next question, um, or a later question, is the fact that um, we can't just use one map
1: which makes your life inevitably much more difficult. Um, I suppose we can go to that now, actually. Uh, why don't you use just one map? Why is... What, what are some of the existing complexities uh, with maps, even if everything is updated? Um, there's still a bunch of problems. Yeah, you tell us about this?
0: Yeah, politically speaking, that's where, that's where the issue is. It is, um, we, we can't send a globe to China Taiwan marked. We can't send a globe to a number of Middle Eastern countries with Israel marked. We um, and and we we just don't. Um, In in the Chinese case, we will mark Taiwan as Chinese Taipei, um, and we we actually have to tell our customers that they they need to have it marked like that. They don't. They sometimes imagine that. Well, actually, all the Chinese customers who we've spoken to, they don't really see an issue with it being uh, marked as Taiwan. In India, I can go to prison for six months if I send a globe to India with the wrong border marks between India and Pakistan. So it's it's there are a lot of factors to deal with. We've um, we had a globe going to Morocco to a, an American diplomat, and it couldn't have Western Sahara laws because that would offend um, Moroccan diplomats so we we have to be really careful um, how we how we go about things at the same time we have to make sure that uh, we're being realistic and truthful we won't take um, uh, we won't take country names off um, off the globe if there's the, the Taiwan Chinese Taipei situation is a is a disputed situation so that that's easier but things that are not disputed, we, we make sure we we mark them properly. Mm.
1: Thank you for taking us through that. I imagine even figuring out what the rules are and what the penalties are was probably a mass, massive task in and of itself. Um, but this in some ways is not a hugely new problem, kind of what's on the map and it not being fully accurate or needing to be updated. One of the pieces of the book that I think is quite fun, especially for our very sort of history nerdy audience, um, is there you have pieces in the book that kind of talk about the history of maps and globe making more broadly, not just the work that you and your team do, but kind of the intellectual genealogy that led up to it in a way. So asking about one of those sort of pieces, why did some early maps in the United States purposely have incorrect information, purposely have fake towns marked?
0: Yeah, this was... um... This was done to protect their copyrights, so they, they realized that um, some companies were trying to um, get into the business without having spent them, um, with the associated amounts of money in, in creating the their, their mapping, so they were stealing stealing other people's maps. So um, some map makers uh, would add on fake towns and fake islands to to catch people out, but but it also goes to a different level as well with the um, with the globe that we are our huge globe we make, which we call the Churchill Globe, which is based on a globe that was made for Churchill. And result in the war, they were each given one. All the cartographers on that added in their own um, hometowns. Um, so so there'll be there'll be a normal format of all towns or cities above fifty thousand that are on a map and then there'll suddenly be these little villages so it's kind of um, and that's um, the beauty about what we do is we are a printed um, globe we're a printed map globe making is no different to um, um, book publishing we are we are actually a publisher we publish our globes and so um, we now print our globes and, and globe making used to be uh, manuscript globes just like manuscript manuscript books all, all handwritten um, and obviously with printing, they can be that much more accurate, but also you can make one or two more. Of them. Um, and so um, that um, being that we are printing what we're putting on a globe and being we do each one in a bespoke way, it allows us to um, add on detail. For instance, a small town or, or village that the customer would like, but also we, we add on um, illustrations. We add on people's life stories uh, and families' life stories. We have. Amazing stories of people where they their great 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 grandparents started in Eastern Europe and then moved to Western Europe and then moved to the States and then around the States and it's a wonderful thing that kind of brings your family history on 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 a piece of artwork in your room.
1: That is lovely, and um, thank you for sharing that. Um if I might sort of ask a little bit about kind of the practical side of creating that sort of um, customization. Uh, In the book, there's some beautiful evidence, obviously, of watercolors um, as part of the process. And it's discussed as well in terms of how that is possible. Because to be honest, before I read this, I had not really realized that you could use something like watercolors on a spherical object with any sort of precision. So in, you know, building off the previous question about those customizations, would you mind telling us a little bit about the practical side of the illustrations on a globe?
0: Yeah. Well, so, so obviously the, the cartography, the main names, the coastline is all, is the printed element. Then all the color is added by hand. So there, there are two main issues you have here in in any other, um, sort of format. You don't, um, you don't tend to rest, um, your artwork on, on the floor as it were, or on something in order to create the, other bits of the artwork. So on a, a flat canvas, you you never are in a situation where you have to um, where that arises. Whereas with a globe, when you start, you put on one gore, and that's fine. Once you got up to about nine gors, then suddenly you're having to rest the globe on um, on the pieces that you've already put on the on the globe already. So you've got to be really super careful. And that, obviously, when you then are adding filter covers onto a sphere, it is um, it is a skill that our our team have to spend some time getting used to. The my head painter now, when she did her first globe, and this was um, back in June, she's been here ten years, so two thousand and thirteen. um, She she painted her first globe, and it was an eighty centimeter. Um, normally. These days, um, our team come in and they will start with a 12 centimeter and then they'll go up to 22 and then 36, 50, 65. They don't normally start with the larger ones. Well, Isis started with an 80 centimeter and she have not quite realized um, the effect of um, water colors um, and the fact that when you had drips of what seemed like clear water running down a globe, um, in fact, contains tiny little bits of pigment. And so she had a, she painted a wonderfully beautiful glass that had all watermarks uh, running down it you know, on, on either side. So it's something that we've obviously developed a really good process um, to make sure that doesn't happen. Can't be down to every single painter having a rag in their um, a paper rag in their left hand, but equally being, being careful with the, the mm-hmm. amount of fluid that you're applying at any one stage.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Speaking of processes, now that you've given us an idea of kind of how many pieces there are and how delicate and precise they all must be, what role does yoga play in the studio's practice?
0: So when you are making, and this is something I had to teach myself, I'm not the most patient person. And when I was making to begin with, I was struggling, and I picked me um, good over a year and a half to perfect the, the process of applying a piece of paper to a sphere. And so in that time, I started taking up yoga because one of the things I learned is that when you're, when you're putting a, a, a paper onto a sphere, you're having to wet it first, and it, it obviously becomes really fragile, and if you move quickly, you will rip it. And so it was a way of teaching myself uh, to um, to move with a little bit more precision and to move under under uh, in the way I suppose in the way yoga is performed it just it has elements to it that, that really helped that. And we now we have a yoga teacher come in here once twice a week and teach uh, teach the team um, or do yoga practice with the team. Because it's it really is what we're doing requires so much concentration, and you would be amazed if you came into the studio. There are twenty five people in the studio, with the exception of the five downstairs in the workshop. Um, the painters and makers are silent. They're, they're wearing usually wearing earphones, but they are they're silent, and even if they're not wearing earphones, they won't talk to each other because. It requires so much focus to to do either one of the jobs that yeah I mean you just um, yoga is an, an ideal thing. I even also do um, follow follow Vim Hof with his um, cold water um, kind of medicine. So I have I have freezing um, cold showers in the morning as well.
1: Well, if it works, then it very much works. Um, in the book, you obviously talk about as you've talked with us now the complexity of building the globes um the the physical side the uh, information as well but interestingly uh there are some challenges that happen after the globe's already been built after all of those complicated processes are successfully done there are still some hurdles to navigate what sorts of things happen then
0: so once we have um, once we've made the globe, and we're well, it, it kind of is something that happens earlier, but sometimes um, it, it depends on our, how our conversations happen with the customer. But the most fundamental question that we now always ensure that we ask when someone orders a large globe is how big are the doors that you're um, in, into the room where you plan on putting your globe? We've had situations in the past where people had to winch a globe up the outside of a 20-story building. We had a Spanish customer who had a, a wonderful castle, and he wanted the globe to go into a specific room where his study was, and he, he came over here and he saw the globe and he said, 80 centimeter, that's what I want, definitely that size. He, he phoned home, and, and, they, they, and someone said to, to him that, the door wasn't big enough but he didn't believe him so he he got home and then he he called me up and he said peter the the door is 55 centimeters but don't worry we're going to knock down the wall um and then we'll wait for your globe to arrive we'll put the globe in the room and then we'll rebuild the wall um so um yeah there are there are there are things um that that we have to kind of remind people of when they order
1: well and I imagine that as well the kind of support that the globe rests in is um, bigger than the globe itself as well so even if the door had been exactly 81 centimeters that wouldn't have helped
0: yeah it's um, obviously with a lot of our um, stands they are quite contemporary so actually some of them um, are smaller but yes you're quite right with the traditional stands they are usually bigger than um, 81 centimeters or eight, bigger than the, the globe and they are and and that's the yeah, the thing about a globe, it's it's very easy to work out whether it's gonna go through a space. Um most furniture you can kind of you can you can put through smaller or well, what seem to be smaller spaces because the legs stick out of it and you can kind of go around at an angle with a globe it's eighty centimeters, that's it.
1: No, absolutely. Um you mentioned right at the beginning, of course, that there are beautiful antique globes still around. Um they're also kind of some reasonable reasons why people wouldn't necessarily always want those as their sort of only option for a custom sort of globe. In the book, you detail some really fascinating globes, um, celestial globes and terrestrial globes, throughout that you have found particularly interesting. Could you maybe introduce us to one or two globes that you have found most inspirational or most helpful as you've learned how to do all of this?
0: Yeah, so at the beginning, when I was looking around... I was kind of looking at old globes for inspiration and I was lucky enough to get in contact with the National Maritime Museum over here and they have 400 globes in their collection. So I kind of merrily zoomed off there to go and have a look at them and I I looked around the museum and I could only find four or five. So I got in touch with the curators and and they um, told me, yeah, just like with any museum, most of their most of their stock is not on display so i went to their vaults and i had a look at 400 globes um in their vaults, and they are extremely lucky to have a villain blau globe which is probably one of the most beautiful globes ever made um and it's made in the 1700s it's um it just the cartography is wonderful the, the everything about it the, uh, fonts are amazing and it just was a very inspirational bloke for me, along with a Coronelli, and Coronelli is an interesting one because we slightly got involved with this in that we um we were asked by French Museum if we would help to make um, make a reproduction of one because they still have the original Coronelli plates from 1683. So I went over to Paris and we uh, did the old school in taglio printing um, using these plates, which is an amazing process to watch. Um, and Cornelis, um Globes, he, he made quite a few of them. A lot of them are in Italy and in, in Europe, and a few in museums over here. But there was a, there's a great story, actually. The book is quite long enough, the story. The, uh, there, there was a big argument between King um, Louis. From France and Cornelli, And so in the end, two different sets of um, copper plates were made. And these are the detail on these plates is phenomenal. They must have taken um, months and months to do each one because it's just the detail is so fine. It's essentially um, engraving um, on a copper plate, but it's it's just a wonderful detail. So those are the two. Um, that I really got the most inspiration out of, it. and and we we kind of use uh, some of their methodology, or um, their, certainly the appearance of what and the methodology might be a, of painting our, our globes. I think it's that for me was one of the most important things that I I wanted to create an accurate globe, and I wanted to create a robust globe, but I also wanted to create a beautiful globe. And that's what I'd just been missing from glow making for decades and decades,
1: yeah, that sounds like a really simple combination, um, but obviously very difficult to find if you've got antique ones that are beautiful, but not robust, modern ones that are robust but not beautiful. yeah, um thinking back then on kind of this whole process, um obviously, writing the book, I imagine was something of a reflective exercise. Um and obviously, the years of developing all of this, if you look at that overall, what has perhaps been one of the most frustrating skills to learn, but then maybe if you could give us as a final point, um, something particularly kind of awe-inspiring or cool, you know, I still can't believe I can do that type thing.
0: I mean, now I had a, a, <clears> to <throat> think about this and I, I kind of think it, it's really the same thing, but but while you mentioned the book, it, it's quite a funny one um, with the whole book because I don't. I don't write diaries. Um, I, I assume when most people are writing a book, they they do some sort of research. Um, but my my research was uh, basically uh, my brain. That was I had to <laughs> I had to rem- remember everything as it happened because I'd, I literally had not written it down, uh, which is um, very silly of me. But I, it's because I never really expected any of it to happen. But no, the most frustrating skill was without doubt um, learning how to um gore a you globe know, learning how to put the the pieces of paper um, onto onto a spherical form that that is incredibly frustrating and the only reason i think a, a lot of our team who come in now um persevere is because they see other members of the team who are able to do it but the first the first 50 days you're doing it, you're just ripping paper over and over again, and you're thinking, how on earth is this possible? So that without shadow of doubt is by far the most frustrating. But um, I said, and and again, the most awe-inspiring part of making GLOBE um, is pushing on that last panel, um, and then you, you finally change this sphere kind of into your own little world. And that's um that's the point where you finish and you kind of step back every time. It's not um it's not a one-off time because this you can't just come into work every day and be like, oh I'm gonna I'm gonna knock out um this club today. You can't do that. It's very much a skill that you have to have your A game on you every time you do it so um it's definitely the fact that we now have the six best six best globe makers in the world in my studio is for me by far and away the most awe inspiring thing i can imagine when when i set out to do this there was no one on our planet who could teach me how to do it literally there are seven to eight billion people on this planet, but no one could teach me how to do the project I was setting myself up to do. Fine, some people can do it in a ham-fisted way or a not, um, not very skillful way, but no one has been doing it um, to a high level for certainly since the 1930s, if not um, before. Um, and so that, for me, I suppose, I'm, I'm often asked, do, do, I must be really proud of this. And do I think it's amazing? And I, I don't. But actually, when I think about that one statistic, that kind of makes, um, makes it sound, um, to use a very poor word, very cool.
1: No, absolutely. And I think just that one answer um, really speaks to the whole title of the book, which is a reminder to our listeners, is The Globe Makers, The Curious Story of an Ancient Craft, right? That answer even by itself does um, kind of speaks to all of those words so well. So thank you so much, Peter, for being with us on the podcast.
0: My pleasure. Thank you very much.